Due to the graphic nature of this man's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and anti-Semitism. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On October 15, 1944, Operation Mickey Mouse was in progress. The plan was simple. Kidnap Miklos Horty Jr., son of Hungarian regent Miklos Horty, and hold him hostage. Adolf Hitler believed it was the only way to ensure that Hungary would keep fighting alongside Germany. Providing muscle for the mission was Hitler's favorite Waffen-SS commando, 36-year-old Otto Skortseni. On the morning of the 15th, 30 Waffen-SS commandos hid in covered trucks on a street in Budapest. Meanwhile, Skortseni stood in front of an office building and pretended to fiddle with his Mercedes engine. A short time later, Horty Jr. and his security detail entered the office building. As soon as Jr. sat down, Gestapo agents burst in and seized him. Back on the streets, Hungarian soldiers spotted the SS commandos and opened fire. Skortseni blew a whistle, signaling his men to attack. Budapest had suddenly turned into a battlefield. As Skortseni described it during the chaos, he lobbed a grenade at a group of Hungarian soldiers near the entrance of the office building. The explosion destroyed some pillars, crushing the Hungarian soldiers with debris. With the coast clear, Skortseni ran inside the office building. He ordered his men to bundle their new hostage into a rug and take him to the airport. Once again, Otto Skortseni had successfully carried out a mission for his Führer. Within weeks, he would receive another. Only this time, it would be against an enemy he had never faced. The Americans. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're taking a look at Hitler's henchmen. These officers helped the Nazi leader build his regime and spread terror across Europe. Last week, we dove into the rise of Otto Skortseni. An Austrian fascist, Skortseni's thirst for military glory and pan-Germanism led him to the Waffen-SS. In the summer of 1943, he was tasked with rescuing Benito Mussolini, who was on the run somewhere in Italy. This week, we're exploring the raid on Gran Sasso, where Mussolini was allegedly hiding. We'll also discuss some of Skortseni's other operations that the Third Reich thought might change the tide of the war. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 
there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Ever since he was a young man, Otto Skorzeny craved two things. The creation of a pan-German empire and military glory. It's what brought him to the Nazi party and why he championed Hitler's aggressive takeover of Europe. But when war broke out, Skorzeny found himself mostly bouncing between hospital stays and glorified mechanic jobs. Even after he joined the Waffen-SS, he still seemed to toil in obscurity. Finally, in 1943, Hitler personally selected Skorzeny to help rescue the deposed Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Skorzeny got his chance to shine. When Skorzeny arrived in Italy in July 1943, Mussolini had seemingly disappeared. For weeks, Scorsini and his men chased rumors and leads, only to come up empty. Finally, in September, Scorsini's team learned that Mussolini may have been hiding in a hotel in the Gran Sasso Massif. They didn't have time to do a proper recon mission to confirm, but it didn't matter. Time was of the essence. Though Hitler had personally selected Skorzeny to participate in Mussolini's rescue, overseeing the logistics was Luftwaffe Lieutenant General Kurt Student. Because of the dire situation, Student insisted that the raid commence at once. Student decided on a double assault. The only reasonable way up to the hotel was via cable car. So Student organized two motorized companies to attack the cable car base, cutting off any possible Italian interference. Meanwhile, roughly 100 paratroopers in 12 gliders would land next to the hotel. Once the paratroopers seized Mussolini, they would signal a liaison aircraft circling above and have it carry Mussolini to safety. At no point in the initial planning was Scorzani supposed to participate in the raid. Rather, he was tasked with the rescue of Mussolini's family from a medieval castle in northern Italy. Scorzani's thirst for glory left him unsatisfied with this ancillary assignment. So he complained to Kurt Student. Because the two were legitimate friends, Scorzani convinced Student to let him partake in the glider assault. Scorzani wasn't done meddling. He elbowed out several paratroopers so that there was room on the gliders for his SS commandos, as well as a personal photographer and journalist. He didn't want to waste any chance to document his glory for posterity. On the morning of September 12, 1943, Operation Oak, as it was dubbed, commenced. As the gliders left later that day, Scorzani sat in the fourth glider. Those ahead of him had the more important task of actually storming the hotel. However, during the flight, strong headwinds delayed the lead planes. As a result, Scorzani's glider wound up in the front. 
Gliders only have one chance for a smooth landing, and the mountainous Grand Sasso invited disaster. According to Scorzani, during the flight, he cut a hole into the glider's fabric so that he could visually guide the aircraft to a safe landing. However, the glider pilot later dismissed that story as absurd. In fact, the safe landing owed much more to the indifference of the soldiers guarding the hotel. While the gliders landed, the guards rushed outside and just stared in bewilderment. After the bumpy landing, Scorzani stumbled out. Between the confusion of being first and adrenaline coursing through him, Scorzani left his gun in the glider before he went searching for a way inside with a small team behind him. Finally, he found the main entrance of the hotel. Before entering, he looked up and spotted a grumpy, bald man peering from a window. Benito Mussolini. By sheer luck, Mussolini's head of security was asleep when the gliders arrived. Once their curiosity and bewilderment subsided, the majority of Mussolini's guards ran and hid as the German paratroopers arrived, offering a chance to regroup from the scattered landing. Of course, Gorzani was eager to seize all the glory for himself. So, breaking away from the German team, he rushed through the hotel. He found Mussolini in his room and proclaimed that he, Otto Scorzani, was there to rescue him. With Il Duce now in his hands, Scorzani knew there was only one thing to do, immortalize his victory. A cameraman from the propaganda department captured Mussolini congratulating the Germans. However, Scorzani made sure that his photographer snapped plenty of pictures lionizing himself and the SS. But the mission wasn't over. They had to get Mussolini to safety. After all, the threat of an execution still lingered for Il Duce. After signaling the liaison plane that it was safe to land, the plan was to take Mussolini to Vienna. What wasn't part of the plan was Scorzani telling the pilot that he was coming along. Scorzani wanted to personally deliver Mussolini to Hitler. The pilot balked. There was no space for the six-foot-four Scorzani. Nevertheless, the towering commando crammed himself into the luggage compartment and refused to budge. The pilot gave up trying to dissuade him and agreed to take off. After a very bumpy takeoff, Scorzani and the Italian dictator made it to safety and transferred to a bomber heading to Vienna. Mussolini was free. The night Scorzani touched down in Vienna, he received congratulatory calls from Heinrich Himmler, Hermann Göring, and other Nazi officials. Within hours, Scorzani received the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross, the highest military award in Nazi Germany. But the most important praise, of course, came from Hitler. At midnight, the Fuhrer called Scorzani and congratulated him on his historic-making accomplishment. Scorzani could only have beamed with pride. He had achieved glory. As for Mussolini, his spirit wasn't revitalized by the rescue. He had wanted to step down and recede into the shadows, but Hitler hadn't gone through the trouble of rescuing him just to let him retire. 
Less than two weeks later, Mussolini had little choice but to announce the formation of the Italian Social Republic. This German puppet state consisted of only the northern half of the peninsula. The south belonged to the Allies. Ironically, the man who had been caught napping during the raid stayed on as Mussolini's head of security. While Mussolini slowly faded, Otto Skorzeny enjoyed a dizzying rise. With the German military being pushed back on all fronts, the Reich's propaganda department was desperate for good news. Mussolini's rescue was a godsend. Once the bumbling, farcical details were omitted, the story was better than fiction. A tall, dashing commando emerged from obscurity to save Il Duce right out from under the Allies' noses. And not a single shot was fired. Well, one bullet was fired when a commando accidentally discharged his rifle while clambering out of a glider. Again, unheroic details were swept under the rug. Skorzeny was an overnight star, and the Nazis eagerly exploited that. Josef Goebbels, Hitler's propagandist, put Skorzeny on the state-run radio. Skorzeny proclaimed that he was Mussolini's savior, and even invented a shootout at the hotel to make the story more exciting. And as if that wasn't enough... Skorzeny rewrote history and claimed that the whole operation was his idea. Anyone who complained that he was lying found their cries falling on deaf ears. But with new fame came new responsibilities. Though the raid had opened the door for Skorzeny's career, he soon realized that not every mission was going to be as daring or exciting. Hitler realized that he could use Skorzeny's special forces in ways that weren't necessarily adventurous or swashbuckling. Rather, he wanted his new favorite commando to become an instrument of terror and death. Otto Skorzeny was all too willing to comply. Coming up, Skorzeny searches for a miracle to save the dying Third Reich. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. The Grand Sasso Raid in September 1943 made 35-year-old Otto Skorzeny an overnight sensation in Germany. Much of that newfound celebrity was due to the fact that Germany's war effort had stalled and the Reich was desperate for a miracle. The success of the raid convinced the Nazi high command to try more creative exploits. 
The scalpel could accomplish what the sledgehammer could not. Throughout the autumn of 1943, Scorsini was involved in planning several special forces missions. One included the triple assassination of the leaders of the Allies, Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. However, logistics made it impossible and the plan was soon scrubbed. Instead, Hitler set his sights on Germany's neighbor, Denmark. Denmark fell to German occupation in 1940. But by the end of 1943, the occupied lands were waging a robust resistance against the Nazis. To combat this, Hitler began a campaign of assassinations and destruction of Danish culture. Skortzany and his team were entrusted with managing this reign of terror. Skortzany armed his men with guns that fired British ammunition. The British had long been weapons suppliers for the Danish resistance. Thus, any killings committed by his commandos would appear as if it were being done by the Danish resistance. Shortly after Christmas, the unit entered Denmark and unleashed their terror. Skortzany's men attacked and killed resistance members, journalists, and pastors. At the same time, they destroyed movie theaters, playhouses, newspapers, and national landmarks, anything that symbolized Danish culture. But despite the bloodshed and violence, Skortzany's cultural purge didn't quite have the same success Reinhard Heydrich had against the Czechs. The Danes were persistent, and the Nazis lacked the resources to destroy them because almost everything was tied up on the Eastern Front. After nearly a year, the operation fizzled out. The Danish resistance was stiff, but it was a paper cut compared to the festering ulcer that was the Balkans. Thanks in part to the savage cruelty of Hitler ally Ante Pavlich, the resistance movement in Yugoslavia was massive. The leader of the partisans was a charismatic communist guerrilla fighter named Josip Broz Tito. By late 1943, Tito's partisan army numbered over 300,000, and their resistance was a terrible drain on German manpower. Since the German military couldn't crush the partisans, Hitler decided to cut off the head of the snake. Tito had to die. Unfortunately for Otto Skorzeny and his assigned Waffen-SS division, finding Tito was even more difficult than finding Mussolini. For months, German intelligence struggled to pinpoint Tito's exact whereabouts. By the time Skorzeny arrived in Belgrade, Serbia in 1944, the Germans were still very much in the dark. So, Skorzeny traveled to the city of Zagreb and created his own intelligence network. The move paid off. They quickly discovered Tito's headquarters were in a cave near the town of Dravar, located today in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Skorzeny initially designed a simple plan. He would lead a small team disguised as partisans, head right into the hornet's nest, and either capture or kill Tito. Skorzeny undoubtedly anticipated another Grand Sasso. Killing the Reich's greatest rebel would have been quite a notch on his belt. However, much to Skortzeny's annoyance, his plan never materialized. As it turned out, the German army was already in the midst of their own operation to raid Tito's location. Skortzeny's plan was superseded 
and he didn't even get to participate in the military's raid. In a way, it was a blessing. At the end of May 1944, roughly 650 German paratroopers assaulted the cave but failed to capture it. Tito managed to escape, though as a consolation prize, the Nazis captured Tito's uniform. This failure was soon overshadowed by far greater disasters all across the Third Reich. At the beginning of June, the Allies successfully invaded France. American and British troops slowly but surely began to reclaim Western Europe. Meanwhile, in June and July, the Soviets' Operation Bagration smashed the German front line. Russian figures suggest that 400,000 Germans were killed, while 158,000 were taken prisoner. It was a major blow along the Eastern Front. And to top it all off, on July 20th, German officers tried to assassinate Hitler in an attempted coup. The Führer survived and remained in power. However, 5,000 suspects were either executed or compelled to take their own lives. Skorzeny's continued rise directly correlated to the Third Reich's fall. As the situation for Germany deteriorated, dreams of finding some miracle became ever more absurd. Greater faith was placed in special forces, and thus on Skorzeny. Of course, the lack of resources made any mission that much more impossible. Skorzeny's performance was not inspiring. He viewed himself as a man of action and was personally unsuited to overseeing a large organization. Shirking paperwork, he preferred to concoct exciting missions rather than bother himself with administrative details. None of that seemed to matter to Hitler, if he was even aware of any of it. Mission failures aside, Skorzeny was still Hitler's favorite commando. And in early September 1944, he summoned Skorzeny for his next mission. Hitler learned that the Kingdom of Hungary, a Nazi ally, was likely going to defect. Intelligence revealed that Miklos Horthy, Hungary's regent, was in secret negotiations to surrender to the Allies. Hitler couldn't let this happen. In the middle of October 1944, Skorzeny launched Operation Mickey Mouse. In a daring mission, Skorzeny and his commandos kidnapped Horty's son and held him hostage in order to keep Hungary allied with Germany. While the kidnapping itself was a success, the drama that supposedly unfolded in the streets of Budapest was greatly exaggerated. The perilous shootout, the grenade explosion, and the hordes of Hungarian soldiers all come from Skorzeny's account. Those details appear to be largely an invention. In fact, it seems that the most Skorzeny actually did during the kidnapping was trick a patrol unit into retreating from the scene. Yet, gross embellishments aside, the Nazis seized Miklos Horty Jr. He spent the rest of the war in concentration camps. But the kidnapping only hardened Horty Sr.'s resolve, and shortly afterwards, he announced he had signed an armistice with the Soviet Union. The Germans responded by occupying Budapest. Horty refused to surrender and held out with his security detail in the royal palace. Skorzeny led the assault on the palace. Characteristically, he ordered his men not to fire without explicit instructions. 
Instead, a show of force, tanks and trucks bristling with heavy-armed commandos, was enough to carry the day. The Germans forced their way into the palace with almost no fighting. As it turned out, the display of brute strength had all been entirely unnecessary. Horthy had already surrendered to Hitler in exchange for guarantees of safety for himself and his family. But no one bothered to tell Skorzeny. Still, Hitler made sure to heap the commando with plenty of praise for the capture of Budapest. Following the Hungarian mission, Skorzeny went to Hitler's newly built Führer bunker and was awarded the German cross in gold. More importantly, Hitler already had another assignment lined up, which he insisted would be the most important of Skorzeny's career. By the fall of 1944, the Western Allies were closing in on Germany proper. Hitler knew it was only a matter of time before British and American tanks rolled across the Rhine. To stop the Allies, Hitler rested his last hopes on a desperate counteroffensive in the Ardennes forest between Belgium and Luxembourg. He believed it would knock out the Western armies and force a peace treaty. This would allow him to amass all of Germany's remaining power against the Soviets, who were steadily marching toward Berlin. Skorzeny's assignment was dangerous. During the counteroffensive, he and his commandos were to infiltrate enemy lines in American and British uniforms and cause confusion in the Allied ranks. Their ultimate objective was to capture the Meuse bridges between Liège and Namur in eastern Belgium. The plan became known as Operation Greif. Naturally, the almost reckless danger of the mission appealed to Skorzeny. His superiors in the military, though, were less enthused. On the one hand, virtually everyone could see that the Ardennes offensive was doomed from the start. There simply weren't enough resources or manpower to achieve Hitler's objectives. Skorzeny, however, didn't seem concerned by all that. He was fanatically loyal to his Führer and eagerly anticipated creating total chaos behind enemy lines. Coming up, Skorzeny prepares for his last stand amongst the ruins of the Third Reich. Now back to the story. In October 1944, 36-year-old Otto Skorzeny learned about Hitler's plan to knock the Western Allies out of World War II. As British and American troops inched closer to Germany, Hitler launched a desperate counteroffensive from the Ardennes Forest in Belgium. As part of the offensive, Skorzeny oversaw Operation Greif. He and his commandos were to head behind enemy lines and capture a couple of bridges. At the same time, they were going to dress as British and American soldiers and sow confusion among the Allies. However, the mission had some unexpected complications. Some questioned whether or not Operation Greif was technically legal. The 1907 Hague Convention stated that soldiers disguised in enemy uniforms had to reveal themselves before opening fire. Otherwise, they were committing a war crime. Legality had not been much of a concern for the Nazis thus far. 
By now, millions of Jews, Poles, Slavs, and Roma had been systematically murdered on the Nazis' order. But in the warped racial ideology of the Nazis, those war crimes had been carried out against so-called lesser races. Operation Greif was targeted against the assumed Anglo-Saxon American and British forces. The issue was enough of a concern that Skorzeny reached out to a legal expert in the OKW, the high command of the German armed forces. As well, his senior officer during the planning stage of the operation told him flat out that the operation was a violation of international law. Not getting the answer he wanted, Skorzeny simply ignored him. As if legal barriers weren't enough of a concern, Skorzeny ran into logistical problems as well. He wanted all of his 3,300 volunteers to be able to speak perfect English. He got 10. And only some of them knew American English. To work around this, Skorzeny ridiculously decided that most of the brigade would remain silent and pretend to be too racked with anguish to say a word. The lack of suitable manpower extended to a lack of suitable resources. The Germans didn't have many captured enemy vehicles, so Skorzeny jerry-rigged German medium tanks to look like American tank destroyers. The deception worked, so long as an American didn't look too closely. Skorzeny couldn't even get enough enemy uniforms. Instead, his men wore a mishmash of whatever they could get, and were told to stay hidden in trucks during the day so no one would spot them. The Ardennes counteroffensive began on December 16, 1944, and got off to a rocky start. The opening artillery and rocket barrage overshot its targets. As a result, the Nazis did little real damage to the Allies. Meanwhile, the Americans put up stiff resistance, which meant that the Germans weren't able to break through the center line. This created a bottleneck that slowed the whole German army. Skorzeny, trapped in a traffic jam, had to walk six miles to find out what was happening. In fact, the only Waffen-SS commando to break through was tank commander Joachim Piper. Piper managed to make a significant 15-mile push against the Americans, opening up a small lane. Unfortunately, once he made his way through, Piper committed one of the worst military atrocities in the Western Front. He ordered the execution of 84 American prisoners of war, an event that became known as the Malmedy Massacre. It's unclear exactly when Skorzeny learned of the massacre. However, it would stay with him for long after the war. After Joachim Piper's breakthrough, Around 32 of Skorzeny's commandos managed to slip behind enemy lines. Wearing their American disguises, it was now time to create chaos and confusion. But not all of them got very far. One jeep of Nazi commandos, for example, was stopped when its occupants were unable to provide a password. They were imprisoned, tried, and faced a firing squad. Meanwhile, when another jeep was stopped at a checkpoint outside Liège, the commandos were asked for identification. According to historian Stuart Smith, it was the papers that gave them away. 
They were a bit too new and shiny, and the captain a tad too fastidious in opening his paybook at exactly the right page. Americans just weren't that polite. They, too, ended before a firing squad. Despite some of these setbacks, a few of Scorsini's men did manage to sow some confusion among the American ranks, enough to at least cause the U.S. to take extra precautions with their central commanders. Five-star General Omar Bradley was routinely stopped and forced to answer questions about American football and pop culture to ensure he wasn't a German spy. Meanwhile, a Dwight Eisenhower look-alike began traveling in the Supreme Commander's car as a decoy. Ultimately, though, Scorsini's men failed in dealing any substantive material damage. More importantly, they couldn't seize the Muse bridges. As a result, Operation Greif was abandoned shortly after it began. Scorsini joined in more conventional fighting, much to his frustration. By the start of 1945, neither special forces nor conventional fighting could save the Germans. On January 12th, the Soviets unleashed a massive offensive, pushing the Germans out of most of Poland. Skortseny was placed in command of a unit that would at one point grow to 15,000 men to help stop the Soviet advance. Skortseny's own mediocrity as a commander was exacerbated by the ineptitude of the German high command, which was plagued by bitter political infighting. Under Skortseny's supervision, any talk of retreat was met with summary execution, and not just among his soldiers. For example, in Schwedt-Brandenburg, roughly 65 miles north of Berlin, Skortseny ordered at least 10 civilians to be put to death. In the closing weeks of the war, Skortseny fought one feudal battle after another. In April, he went back east to help defend Vienna, which was on the verge of surrendering to the Soviets. A few weeks later, the Soviets captured the city, and Skortseny retreated to Upper Austria to make his last stand. While plotting an attack on the Soviets, Skortseny learned distressing news. Hitler had killed himself in his Berlin bunker. His successor, Admiral Karl Dönitz, was working on an armistice with the Allies. At first, Skortseny refused to believe it. But the report was soon confirmed, and Skortseny accepted that his leader was dead. After the confirmation, Skortseny allegedly told his troops, quote, The Fuhrer is dead. Long live Germany. Then he led a rendition of Deutschland über alles, a portion of the German national anthem. Skortseny was confronted with the awkward situation of what to do now. He discussed hiding his identity and going underground. However, one of his men pointed out that at six foot four and with a distinctive facial scar, Skortseny probably wouldn't remain hidden for long. Ultimately, Skortseny decided to turn himself in. He gambled that the Americans and Brits would turn against the Soviets. Perhaps they could use an anti-Bolshevik specialist in the inevitable conflict. So, on May 16, 1945, Skortseny stepped down from the mountains and surrendered. For the next two years, he remained imprisoned and routinely interrogated. In June 1947, 
39-year-old Otto Skortseni faced various charges of war crimes at the American-led Dachau trials. The gravest charge, though, regarded his conduct during Operation Greif and his alleged involvement in the Malmedy massacre. Ironically, the British helped Skortseni's defense. During the trial, an agent in the UK's Special Operation Executive testified that British agents had prepared to fire upon the enemy while wearing German uniforms. As a result, Skortseni's lawyer argued that he was being prosecuted for something the Allies had been willfully prepared to do themselves. Further, no evidence could prove that Skortseni was in the area when the Malmedy massacre took place. So on September 9th, a U.S. military tribunal acquitted him. Though cleared by the Americans, that didn't mean Skortseni was now a free man. As a former SS officer, he had to go through a process called denazification. The idea was to cleanse those servants of the Third Reich who could be reintegrated into the new German society. To that end, Skortseni was transferred to the Darmstadt internment camp. While imprisoned at Darmstadt, Skortseni learned that he might be extradited to Soviet-occupied Czechoslovakia to face more charges of war crimes. Not wanting to face the Soviets, Skortseni managed to get in contact with a former SS officer and ask for help. On July 27, 1948, three former SS men, disguised as U.S. military police, arrived at Darmstadt. They said Skortseni was needed in Nuremberg and showed the appropriate paperwork. The men escorted Skortseni right out the front gate. And as easy as that, Skortseni escaped Allied custody. Over the next few years, Skortseni bounced around Europe and South America, writing his memoirs and avoiding capture. Finally, in September 1950, he made his way to Francoist Spain and laid down his roots. At some point during his fugitive years, Skortseni was involved in building a secret neo-Nazi army, ostensibly to combat the Soviets. Naturally, he wanted to lead it himself. For a few years, he tried to assemble a team, even searching as far as Egypt, but found little to no support. Instead, Skortseni switched careers. While in Madrid, he helped broker a lucrative steel production contract. This opened the door to more international contracts, and by 1954, Skortseni had transformed himself into a wealthy businessman. Much of his remaining years were marked by industrial business. However, in 1970, he established the Paladin Group, a far-right private security contractor. Some of his clients included Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi and the apartheid government of South Africa. But by the 1970s, Skortseni's health rapidly deteriorated. Finally, on July 5, 1975, the 67-year-old Otto Skortseni died of lung cancer. By the end of his life, Skortseni was a relic in more ways than one. He bore dueling scars that seemed from another century and an eagerness to prove his manhood and bask in glory earned from feats of action. At the same time, he was a devoted German nationalist and fascist. Of Hitler's henchmen, Skortseni never held much real power, 
Unlike Himmler or Heydrich, Scorsini didn't control the lives of millions. Rather, he was a charismatic tool for Nazi propaganda. Propaganda that he wholeheartedly believed in until his last breath. Once, in his twilight years, he sat down to dinner with a former British Army officer and swapped war stories. At one point, the officer remarked that the German invasion of the Soviet Union would have gone easier had they attempted to make friends with those they conquered. After an awkward silence, Scorsini said such a thing wasn't possible. When asked why, he responded, quote, Because they are subhumans. Thanks for listening to Dictators. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on Otto Scorzani, amongst the many sources we used, we found Otto Scorzani, The Devil's Disciple by Stuart Smith to be particularly helpful to our research. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Joe Guerra and Kate Gallagher, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>